if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and open with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We've been working our way through this letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and that's why it's called 1 Timothy. And it's his first letter to Timothy because there's also a second Timothy in the New Testament. And if you've been tracking with us over the past few weeks, Paul has been dealing with the theme of prayer. Three weeks ago, we looked at uh, the very beginning in, in verse 1 to 7, which is focused on all types of prayer for all types of people. And we saw how Paul wants that prayer for all types of people to be rooted and grounded in deep, profound theological truth about Jesus. And so that's why then two weeks ago we looked at Jesus as our mediator. As it says in verse 5, there is one mediator between God and man. And then last week we focused on Jesus as our ransom because this mediator gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now today... Paul is continuing with this theme of prayer. And most likely what he's dealing with in the rest of this chapter is not just prayer generally, but especially corporate prayer and prayer in the context of the, the gathered worship of the church. And so as he reflects on this call to pray for all types of people in verse 1 of this chapter, now in verse 8, he's beginning to apply this. And so first he's going to apply this teaching on prayer specifically to men in the church. And then in verse 9, he's going to turn and address this teaching to women within the church. And so again, this is the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Now, to, I... I printed, I had the, the, the rest of the chapter printed in the bulletin, so if you don't have a Bible with you, you can read along there. But today we're just going to look at verse 8 through 10. And then next week we're going to look at verse 11 to 15, which focuses on uh, the role of women within the church in terms of teaching. And so again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 8. And this is the word of God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is truth, that your word is good. But Lord, we want to understand what you are saying here. And not so we can pick and choose, but we want to understand so that we can apply this, so we can live it, so we can see how good your word is for men and women and children and all people. And so, Father, please guide my words, uh, guide 
the, those who are hearing this, whether online or here on, in person. Uh, and I, I pray that, that you would prevent me from saying anything false, anything untrue to this text and to your teaching in Scripture. Um, and I pray that, that the truth here would be communicated, that the listeners would understand, that you would give them ears to hear, hearts to believe, um, that you could use this text to, to drive us all to Jesus, to see his work for us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so it goes without saying that, that we're entering into a culturally difficult and controversial section of Scripture. Uh, somebody was, was teasing me actually last week that the reason we had been slowing down and doing multiple sermons was to avoid getting to verse 8 which is not true. I was going to, to get there. This is the great thing about preaching through books of the Bible, section by section, is eventually, you can, there are only so many sermons you can do in a few verses. Eventually you have to move on. Um, but also, I, I think that as we, as we reflect on this passage, it's, it's really great that we get to look at topics that are difficult, but are actually very relevant for the life of the church. And to help us avoid misunderstanding, because misunderstanding is always possible, and especially if you're new to Christianity or new to Hope Church, I, I want to talk about a key presupposition that is going to be a foundational assumption as we look at this passage. And really, this is our foundational assumption every week here at Hope, but I want to especially point it out this week. And the foundational presupposition, the, the starting place is that the Bible is the inerrant and authoritative word of God, that the Bible is without error. It's, there are no mistakes in the Bible. It is authoritative. And that fundamentally the Bible is truthful in everything that God intends to teach us about himself, the world, salvation, how we are to live in the world, and so that means that when we come to this passage, this section of Scripture, along with many other difficult sections in the Bible, that we aren't approaching this to be able to, to pick and choose. This isn't the mere subjective opinion of the Apostle Paul. But as we talked about in the first week of this series, when he said that he was a, he's an apostle by the command of God, that he's not speaking here as a mere individual, but he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, that this section of Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. And of course, that doesn't mean that we always interpret the Bible correctly. Even though the Bible is true and the Bible is clear, uh, because of our cultural blinders, sometimes we can misunderstand Scripture, and sometimes scripture is even misrepresented intentionally by teachers. But that doesn't excuse us from, the, the, from recognizing the clarity of scripture, that, that the Bible is fundamentally clear. So when we study the Bible in its context, when we really look at what it's saying, we're guided by the Holy Spirit in our interpretation and our reading of scripture, that once we see what the Bible is saying in its context, that, that we can't say, well, I'm going to take this part that I like, and I'm going to reject this other part that I don't like. That our call is to see it as the Word of God and to submit to it as 
the word of God, and to believe that it's not just true and authoritative, but it's actually good, because it comes from an infinitely good God. And even when it pushes against cultural assumptions in certain ways that that is good because it's coming from a creator who loves us and who gave himself for us in the person of Christ. So again, that's our presupposition. And if you struggle with that, if you're not sure about the authority and inspiration of the Bible, uh, I will buy you lunch or get coffee. And I would love to just talk about it. Here are your concerns, your thoughts, uh, any questions you might have, share why this is the case. But again, today, as we walk through this passage, the assumption is that what we're doing is not evaluating whether or not we like what Paul's saying, but it's really to try to say, what actually is he saying? So we don't misunderstand it. And once we understand it, then the call is to receive it as the good word of God. And so that's our our presupposition, our, our long introduction. But now let's dive into this together. And the first thing that we see right off the bat is Paul's instruction for men, his teaching for men in the context of prayer and worship. And so look at verse 8 in your Bible. The, the first verse of this passage, he says, I desire. And right there, we can say exactly what I was just saying, that this isn't Paul's subjective desire. He's not saying, well, I desire this, but it's really just my desire but, but this is him speaking as an apostle, authoritatively, the word of Christ, that this is really the, the divine author saying, I desire. This is the desire of Christ. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And so you look at that, and you see, to begin with, the place of prayer. Because he says that I desire then that in every place the men should pray. And so the call is for men to pray in all places in the world, to pray in private, to pray with their families, to pray in church, to pray in every place. This is also the goal of church planting of world missions is to see prayer spread to all places in the world, to see men, women, and children all praying to the Lord. And eventually, the goal of God in history is to spread prayer throughout the whole world, that the new heavens and the new earth, there will be prayer of all people in the world, this this sense of prayer in all places. So again, that's the, the place of prayer. But notice also the posture of prayer in verse 8. Paul says that men should pray lifting holy hands. Now, sometimes in Scripture, it talks about people kneeling in prayer. That's what Daniel does in Daniel 6.10, or Stephen at the end of his life in Acts 7.60, or Jesus in Luke 22.40. That there is something about engaging our whole body in prayer that we are psychosomatic creatures. We are, are, are creatures that are designed by God in such a way that our, the, the position of our body matters. We know that body language matters. And so there, there's something about engaging the whole person when we're praying to God. But it's not just kneeling. There are other places in Scripture where it talks about laying flat on the ground or on the floor in prayer. 
That's what we see from Moses who laid on his face in Daniel 16.20 or Job who laid on his face in Job 1.20 or Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1.28 or even in the book of Revelation, the heavenly hosts fall down on their face before the throne of God in worship. And so that's an, another posture of prayer. And there's not a correct posture of prayer. Often the posture of prayer depends on, on where we're praying what we're doing, where we are in our heart. Uh, but I would encourage you, even as you think about prayer in your life, to, to experiment different times, different postures of prayer, depending on your needs. But here, what Paul is envisioning is for men to pray, and it says, lifting holy hands. And that is especially a posture of prayer that you might see in somebody who's leading others in prayer. I mean, I catch myself often when I, when I do the benediction, I, I, I raise my hand uh, when somebody leads a congregation in prayer, often they, they, they'll raise their hands like this. That's not always the case, but it's just a natural position for leading others in prayer. And so what Paul is likely talking about here is the, the elders of the church, as we'll, we'll get into in chapter 3. The, the elders of the church leading the church in corporate prayer, something akin to the pastoral prayer here at Hope, that that they're raising holy hands in prayer to the Lord, praying all types of prayer for all types of people. So that's the, the posture of prayer here in verse 8. But then finally notice the, the purity of prayer here. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now is that... You read about holy hands. And if you were a, a Jewish reader, a Jewish listener to this text, you would probably think about ritual purity, that often they would wash their hands before going into the temple. They would wash their hands before offering sacrifices. And even in Jewish tradition, it talks about this in the Gospels, that they would wash before meals. And there is a sense of this ritual ceremonial purity before the Lord. But in this text, Paul isn't talking about a ritual ceremonial purity of hands. He's not talking about literally clean hands, although hopefully our hands are clean, especially in a pandemic. Um, but what he's talking about is, is this New Testament reality that, that our pure hands, our holy hands, is not a ritual purity, but it comes through faith in Christ, that we are declared righteous and holy in Christ, that if we are in Jesus, then we receive his hands, which are holy hands, counted to us, and that ultimately that is what makes our hands holy, and that, that then in Christ, rather than using our hands for sin, rather than using our hands for violence, violence or to do evil, we use our hands to serve the Lord. We use our hands to pray. We use our hands to, to lead others. But then he says that these holy hands are raised without anger or quarreling. Now, Paul, is, as, he, as he says this, is really thinking about the, these, the, the tendency of men in this church, or maybe not just in this church, that there can be a tendency for being violent or being belligerent or being harsh 
And that's why in chapter 3, when we get into the qualifications for elders and leaders in the church, Paul says that they shouldn't be violent, they shouldn't be quarrelsome, that they should be gentle. That is the picture that he desires. And, and he's not saying that women don't also struggle with anger. He's not saying that women shouldn't pray because he gives instructions for how women are to pray publicly in 1 Corinthians 11. And he's not saying, again, that this isn't a struggle, that, that you can find individual women who struggle with anger more than individual men. But as you take men and women as a whole, generally, that this anger is more of a besetting sin for men. And that's why I think it's addressed specifically to men here. And we see this just from looking at crime statistics. For instance, if you look at the FBI's website, 88% of people arrested for murder are men. 87% of people arrested for robbery are men. 77% of people arrested for aggravated assault are men. 72% of people arrested for all other categories of assault are men. 92% of federal inmates are men. And men make up more than 80% of both perpetrators and victims of gun violence. And so from the data, it's clear that, that Paul is addressing here a sin that, that men and women together struggle with, but that is especially a besetting sin of men. And what he's saying then is that, that to be a man, that true masculinity isn't being violent or angry, but being gentle that true masculinity isn't being argumentative and quarrelsome, uh, but he's saying instead that, that it's to lift holy hands to God in prayer, that, that true biblical masculinity, as exemplified in Jesus Christ himself, is, is a, a man who is committed to God in prayer. That is the picture of masculinity. And that means that this picture then in verse 8 is not only relevant for men as they think about their own lives, but it's also relevant for women, though indirectly. Because if you're single and you're looking to be in a relationship, that this is the kind of man to look for, to look for someone who is kind and gentle, to look for someone who is dedicated to prayer, to someone who, who recognizes that they're, they've been washed in the blood of Christ, that they're lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Or even if you're married already, you can pray verse 8 for your husband. You can pray that he will have holy hands, that he will use his hands to serve the Lord. You can pray that he will have faith in Christ, that he will lead by example in prayer, that he will be someone who is kind and loving and gentle, following the example of Christ. So this is Paul's teaching then for men here in verse 8. But now let's turn from his instructions for men to his instructions for women. So look in your, your Bible at verse 9. So this is where he's turning from talking to men to talking to women. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. 
And so what is Paul talking about here in these verses? What is what does he want positively and what is he trying to guard against in the context of prayer in the local church? Well, I think that the, the first thing to notice is the way he uses the word and and or. It's kind of a minor detail. We don't want to read too much into it. But when he's talking about braided hair, he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And of course, if, I, if you said to somebody, you can't have cookies and ice cream, that means something that different than saying you can't have cookies or ice cream. Uh, that, that those words mean something different. Again, we can't read too much into that. But what it seems to indicate then is that, that Paul isn't just saying braids are not allowed or gold is not allowed, that there's, there's something else going on in this text, some combination of these things that he's specifically addressing. And most likely what he's doing is dealing with something actually in Roman fashion, that if you look at the, the cultural background of this, and, and you could even Google Roman hairstyles um, and look at the, the Google images that come up where people study what the hairstyles were in the ancient Greco-Roman world. And it was apparently common, you can, you can see statues of this, to have these tall, elaborate hairstyles with, with braids. Uh, the best way I could describe it is it's sort of a, a almost a Marie Antoinette type hair, but it's more of a braided crest in the front. And then there would be lots of gold and pearls kind of woven into the back of the hair. And that kind of a hairstyle then was a, a symbol of being important, of being wealthy, because it took a lot of time to prepare that kind of hairstyle. It took servants to do it. It took the gold and the pearls to festoon in the hair. And then scholars think that, that this type of a hairstyle was not only used by prominent, influential elites in society to show their wealth and their status, but it also may have been used at the temple of Artemis, that there, within the city of Ephesus where Timothy was ministering, there was also a lot of cult prostitution, and that this elaborate style may have been used, again, not only to draw attention to wealth and status, but maybe even to draw attention to sexual availability in some way. And so that's this, this background. And then you, when he says braided hair and gold, what it, it seems that he is talking about is particularly this prevalent style, this, what, what he was seeing in this time that and so what he was saying then to, to the women in Ephesus, through Timothy here, is that, that the women, as they're preparing for church, he's saying, don't dress in such a way to draw attention to your, to your wealth, to your status. Don't dress in a way that communicates sexual availability. That this is what he is dealing with. And instead, he says, adorn yourself in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, as we read then the words here, I think it can make some feel uncomfortable. Uh, one of the commentators that I was reading said that, that this passage 
raises hackles for women and blood pressure for ministers. And then it said, probably the hackles because it's addressing fashion, and then for ministers, it's their blood pressure that goes up. Uh, but I think it's because we, we look at this and we say, well, there are men who are more concerned about their clothes and their appearance than women. And there are men who use their appearance to try to communicate wealth and status. I mean, think of all the Rolex watches and the expensive suits that men might wear. So, so why is Paul then singling out women here instead of men? And I think that it relates to what we were saying actually in the section about men. That it's not that men and women don't both struggle with anger, but as you look at crime statistics, that anger and violence is a besetting sin for men in particular. And that is very similar for women in this area. And you could see this as well from statistics, even in our world today. The Consumer Tracking Service says, quote, women spend an average of three times more than men on apparel annually, including items for themselves and others, amounting to $159 billion in U.S. sales in 2017. Or from another website, this is more of a budgeting website, it said, quote, the, an, the average millennial woman spends almost 2000 per year on her wardrobe, or almost 5% of her annual budget. For the average man, the same figure is only 854 or almost 2.5 of his annual budget, close quote. And so that, that's not me. This, this is coming from secular sources here. But as we, as we look at that, then I think we can see what Paul is, is getting at. And I don't think that, that there are many reasons that this is the case. We don't know all of the reasons. But one of the reasons, I think, is actually the pressure that society itself puts upon women, the, the judgment that society brings to bear on women. Um, here's another quote. This is from Psychology Today. And it's talking about this pressure of appearance, being judged by your appearance that women so often face in all sorts of places, but especially in the workplace. And it says, quote, the tendency to focus on women's looks and bodies instead of their character traits or abilities even in situations where looks should not matter, is quite widespread. Men, as well as women, tend to establish the worth of individual women primarily by the way their body looks, research shows. We do not do this when we evaluate men. Women are aware of this. Is, oh, sorry, uh, women are aware of this. It is the, is the case and also derive their own sense of value from the way they look. This affects their self-confidence, task focus, and performance, even on tasks totally unrelated to their looks. Close quote. And so that is psychology today. Point out this problem that women face in society of being judged by appearance. And so when we think about that, and when we look at this text then, we realize that what Paul has, what, what God has for us here in the word of God is not prudish. It's not restrictive. It's not what you see from some extreme fundamentalist schools where they're trying to restrict every aspect of clothing, the exact length of dresses or exactly how much skin can be 
shown or not shown that the, there is such a thing as modesty in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't lay out detailed legalistic rules about what that looks like. And there's even a cultural dimension from one society to another that can adjust over time. But rather, what the Bible does is present this beautiful countercultural view of what beauty itself is. A view of beauty that pushes against culture, not only in the first century in the Greco-Roman world, but pushes against culture today as well. You say, well, what is God's view of beauty? In Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says that the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And in 1 Samuel, or sorry, 1 Peter 3, the apostle Peter tells us, tells women, he says, do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the, in, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Then even in our text today from 1 Timothy, Paul says that women should adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And you say, well, what does he mean by good works? Well, he actually defines good works in chapter 5 of this letter. He's talking about how to care for widows. And he's saying that especially it's the older widows that should be cared for. The younger widows can remarry. But he's talking about how, what kind of a widow. And he says a widow who's known for good works. And then he defines the good works. He says, and in verse 10, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and, and has devoted herself to every good work. And so, as you look there, he is not saying that all of those things are true for everyone, but this is the picture of good works, that it, that it could be raising children, it could be serving those in the church. It could be serving the poor and the weak and, and the marginalized. But what it's saying is that this is the biblical definition of true beauty, that it is good works flowing out of a heart that is in love with Christ and on, on fire for him alone. And therefore, then for, for women, whether they conform to the, the culture's current standard of external beauty or not, that there's this freeing, liberating sense that, that this true standard of beauty is God's standard. That's the beauty of the heart, the beauty flowing out in good works. And it's also encouraging to remember that while Hollywood actresses, as they age, find it harder and harder to get roles, that if we're operating with the, the biblical definition of true beauty, that women can actually become more and more beautiful every day of their life because that is the kind of beauty that God cares about. And so therefore, just as women can pray verse 8 for men, so men can pray verse 8 for women in their lives. They can pray this for their wife, for, for a future wife. They can pray for their sisters or for their daughters to pray that this would be the source of beauty, that this would be the kind of beauty that they would believe in, not 
to listen to the lies of what beauty is from our culture, from our society, not to, to bend under those pressures, but to see themselves as Christ sees them. Because God cares very little for the external and far more for what's going on in the inside. And of course, men can also then pray for their own hearts in this matter, that they themselves, that men would not judge women by the standard of the culture, that men would look to beauty as God looks to beauty, would look to the beauty of the heart flowing into good works and service and and love and care for others, that this is true biblical femininity. This is the picture that we see here in Scripture. But as we wrap up then together today, we're going to pull this, we're going to back up, and, and every week our goal is to end with with Christ, with the gospel. And you might say, well, where do we see that in these verses? And I think that we see it both for men and for women. Because for men, it talked about raising holy hands. And we already mentioned, where does holiness come from? And it's not our holiness, but it's the, the holiness of Christ, that he is the only one who truly had holy hands, the one who truly raised holy hands in prayer. And it's only in him and through faith in him that we can even have access to God in prayer. And it's the same for good works. That is, as we strive for this true beauty of good works, where does that come from? And in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were created in Christ for good works. This is for men and women. For good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the works that flow out from our lives, the good works are not our own doing, that it is this fruit and this overflow of God's grace and his work in our lives. And so if we desire then to have this, this true beauty, that it's not then the external clothing, but it's, it's what you see at the end of Revelation is that the church comes down, the new Jerusalem, it says, adorned as a bride for her husband. And that's then what the church is, that, that together as the church is the bride of Christ, that our adorning is not our own goodness, but we're adorned, clothed in the, the garments of the perfect life of Christ, his work for us. That is what clothes all of us in beauty and glory and splendor. And it's that ultimately that we see symbolized and sealed here in this meal, that we see here the way to holy hands, the, the way to true beauty, the way to be clothed with, with the beauty that, that is God's definition of beauty. And it's because Christ came into the world, his body was broken, his blood was shed, that, that he, he gives us himself. Now, as we uh, come to this meal, if you're here and you've never repented and trusted in Jesus, we're, we're thankful that you're here. We want people to be here who are still in process. Uh, but... We would encourage you to, to not come forward to take this because it would be spiritually damaging, the Bible says, and it would be a form of hypocrisy. But similar, even for believers, there could be a times where believers won't take this. Um, it, we said raising holy hands without anger. Uh, that, and Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that if you have something against your brother or your sister and you come to, to present your offering uh, he says, leave it, be reconciled, and then come. And that's the same thing here, that there could be times where you need to, to deal with something in your life, to be reconciled before coming to this meal. But for the rest, you don't have to be strong. You can come as one who is weak. 
You don't have to be a member of Hope Church or a member of a Presbyterian church, but one who's trusting in Christ has made that public by being baptized, by being part of a church that preaches the gospel, one who's resting in Jesus, and one really who can profess the faith that we hold together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. So I'd encourage you to turn to, to page 7, and, and we're going to read this. I think I said Apostles' Creed. I meant Nicene Creed. Uh, we're going to read the, the Nicene Creed together. This is the, the faith that we profess that we hold as we come to this meal. Page 7. 